This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great honor and privilege this evening for me as chair of the Burke Lectureship currently to introduce the speakers and moderator for what promises to be an exciting presentation, the Bishop and the Imam, a conversation on immigration. Given the current political climate, both here in the United States and across the globe, this topic could hardly be more timely. First, our speakers, whom we are very pleased to have with us tonight. Robert W. McElroy was born in San Francisco on February 5th, 1954. He received his undergraduate education at Harvard and received a master's degree in American history from Stanford in 1976. Entering the seminary for the Archdiocese of San Francisco, he was ordained a priest in 1980 and was assigned to the parish where both of his parents had been raised. In 1985, the late Archbishop John Quinn asked him to pursue studies in the field of Catholic social teaching. He subsequently received a doctorate in moral theology from the Gregorian University in Rome and a doctorate in political science from Stanford in 1989. In the following years, he served the Archdiocese of San Francisco as vicar general and as a pastor. And in 2010, Pope Benedict appointed him auxiliary bishop of San Francisco. In 2015, Pope Francis appointed him bishop here in San Diego. Bishop McElroy has written two books, The Search for an American Public Theology and Morality and American Foreign Policy. In addition, he has written a series of articles on theology and public policy for a variety of journals. Bishop McElroy currently serves the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops on the Committees on Domestic Justice, International Justice, Ecumenism, Africa, and Latin America. Most recently, he was a delegate from the U.S. to the Vatican Synod on the Amazon that was called by Pope Francis. Imam Taha Hassan is currently serving as the Imam and Director of the Islamic Center of San Diego. He joined the Islamic Center in September 2004 from the Colorado Muslim Youth Foundation, where he served as a youth instructor. Imam Taha graduated from the Institute of Islamic Sciences at the University of Algiers in Algeria and served as a high school teacher and imam for 10 years before coming to the United States. Imam Taha also holds a master's degree of theology in Islamic studies from the Graduate Theological Foundation in South Bend, Indiana. In addition to his regular duties at the Islamic Center, Imam Taha is preacher and lecturer at various Islamic centers, colleges, and houses of worship in Southern California and around the U.S., a religious advisor of the Muslim Students Association at UCSD uh, since 2004, and a member of the West Coast Muslim Catholic Dialogue. Our moderator, Babak Rahimi, is Associate Professor of Communication, Culture, and Religion, Director of the Program for the Study of Religion at UC San Diego, and uh, as well, he is Director of the Third World Studies Program here. He holds an MA in Ancient and Medieval Philosophy and earned his PhD from the European University Institute in Florence, Italy in 2004. 
He is an expert on Shia Islam and a co-editor of the Wiley Blackwell History of Islam published in 2018. His scholarly articles and publications have led to his being an expert guest on various media programs like the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, BBC and CNN, in addition to NPR and on the media. Professor Rahimi's research interests concern the relationship between culture, religion, and technology. Moreover, the historical and social contexts that inspire his research range from early modern Islamicate societies to the global south. We are indeed grateful that Professor Rahimi, who is also a member of the Burke uh, Lectureship Board of Governors, is able to serve as our moderator tonight. Without further ado, Babak, mm -hmm. I'll turn the moderator duties over to you for this evening's conversation and discussion. Great. Thank you so much for... Thank you so much for the introductions. Thank you for joining us tonight, uh, to which is going to be a fascinating discussion on the topic of immigration. I would like to um, start with Imam, if that's okay. We'll have you go first, and then we'll move to Bishop, and, and afterwards we'll have a discussion, and eventually okay we'll go to Q&A. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. First of all, I would like to uh, thank the Burke Institute for giving me this opportunity to be on the stage tonight with uh, Honorable Bishop McElroy. It's a great pleasure to uh, see him and to be with him again as we uh, see each other often uh, during the meetings of the National or the West Coast uh, Catholic-Muslim Dialogue. And uh, also thank you so much, uh, all our uh, members of the audience, brothers and sisters, for giving me this chance also to share with you some of the thoughts when it comes to uh, immigration and religion, especially at this time where domestically, locally, here and abroad, there are so many, so many things going on that requires uh, a big attention, especially from the faith leaders, the religious leaders, people who represent the voice of morality and ethics in uh, their uh, communities. So our understanding as Muslims to the concept of immigration goes back to our scripture, goes back to the lives of the prophets. And as you may know, 25 of God's prophets were mentioned in the Quran. And I'm going to talk about some of them where immigration was a very important part of their lives. The earth belongs to the creator. Moving on this earth and migrating seeking safety, prosperity, and enjoying God's favors and blessings is a human right. The Holy Quran tells us in chapter 5, verse 97, that one of the questions the angels will ask people who are or who were oppressed in this worldly life, they will tell them, was not the earth of Allah God wide enough for you to migrate to it? In chapter 67, verse 11, God Almighty says, He is the one, God, 
who has made the earth subjugated for you. So walk on its shoulders and eat out of his, provi- his provision. And to him is the resurrection. Back to chapter 5, verse 100. Almighty God says, Whoever migrates in the way of God shall find on the earth many places to settle and a wide dimension of resources. As I have mentioned, 25 out of thousands of prophets that Almighty God has sent to guide this humanity. 25 of them were mentioned in the Quran. Many of them experienced migration in a way or another. The common reason of their migrations was seeking refuge somewhere so they can be safe to practice their faith and convey the divine word of God freely. Abraham, peace be upon him, said to his people when he was leaving, I'm going to leave my homeland towards my Lord. Surely he is the mighty, the wise. Moses, peace be upon him, led his people, the children of Israel, migrating out of Egypt, escaping the slavery and the tyranny of Pharaoh. Jonah, peace be upon him, left his homeland to the land of the Mosul, northern Iraq, to convey God's divine message to its people. And the last prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, migrated from Mecca, which became at that time very hostile to Muslims, to the city of Medina, about 500 kilometers in the north of Mecca, seeking a safe place for himself and his followers to freely practice their faith without fearing persecution. Before that, before the migration from Mecca to Medina, when he was very concerned about the safety and the well-being of his followers in Mecca, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, sent a group of his companions to Abyssinia, modern Ethiopia, telling them, quoting, go to Abyssinia, where there is a just king, no one is oppressed under his leadership. Upon that migration, early Muslims spent several years as refugees in a Christian land in Abyssinia, enjoying a safe environment and freedom for their, of their religion. Therefore, I believe that migration to places where people find safety and can benefit from resources to prosper is a God-given human right. With the situation of the world right now and the circumstances of military conflicts, civil wars, religious intolerance, ethnic cleansing, dictatorship regimes cracking down on liberation movements, economic inequality under the neocolonialism, drought resulting to famine and starvation due to global warming, and many other injustices going on. Under all these circumstances, migration became a must for survival. Just watch or or listen, listen to the daily news and you will have the full picture of the human tragedy. Whether in the Middle East, people fleeing their homeland to refugee camps, or Southeast Asia, where the Rohingya people fleeing ethnic cleansing conducted by the regime in Burma, North African youth and Sub-Saharans crossing the Mediterranean Sea, where so many of them lost their lives, hoping for a stable situation in Europe, or Latin and Central Americans escaping violence and harsh economic situations arriving to our southern 
borders. Have we ever asked ourselves why these millions of people put their lives at risk every single day to reach a place they believe it is safe for them and their families? Have we ever put ourselves in their shoes and tried to understand how does it feel to live in a war zone or under a continuous threat of being killed? Have we ever thought about, their, about families going through fear and food insecurity every single day? A simple reflection on the reality of the immigration crisis in all its aspect will be enough to make us understand that it's not a political or economic crisis. The immigration crisis is a moral crisis. Humanity is failing. Humanity is losing its soul. Humanity is becoming morally and ethically bankrupt, unfortunately. Therefore, I strongly believe that faith communities and religious leaders, along with people of conscience, have a huge responsibility to restore the moral and ethical state of this world. To solve the immigration crisis, we don't need more money or financial resources. We have more than enough. We need passionate, compassionate leaders who put their moral values into consideration whenever they make a decision. We need leaders who value the human life. We need decision makers who see people of the world in the eyes of the Creator. It's not acceptable to separate between family members and take the kids away from their parents. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to put kids in cages and deprive them from the basics of life. It's not acceptable to deny kids and mothers at the U.S. immigration detention centers from the flu shots. Yes, basic thing, flu shots. About three weeks ago, I had the honor to stand with a group of faith leaders and activists in front of the U.S. immigration detention center right here in San Isidro, demanding the CBP to allow nurses from the SEIU to provide flu shots for kids and mothers for free after our government refused to do that due to lack of budget. There were cases of kids dying due to lack of vaccination, unfortunately. It's not acceptable to mistreat people and prevent them from seeking their path to a better life and prosperity just because they belong to a different faith community than us or to a different ethnic group. Human dignity is an important value in our faith, in every faith tradition, and a universal principle amongst all decent people. Thank you. I to want to begin by just saying what a grace it is for us in the religious community in San Diego to have Imam Taha with us. When I first came to know him, I was an auxiliary bishop in San Francisco, and we'd meet at these regional dialogues in Orange. And I remember at the first few, I thought, boy, I wish he'd moved to San Francisco. <laughs> and I'm glad he didn't now, because it's, it's a great gift here. So God answered my, my prayer that you moved <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> yes, your prayer was stronger. <laughs> Very shortly after Pope Francis was elected, uh, there was a terrible tragedy in an island called Lampedusa in Italy, in which a boatload 
of hundreds of refugees and immigrants from the shores of Africa, most of them probably Muslim, died. And no one cared. No one cared. They would not be admitted into Italy because Italy had adopted a policy of not taking any more. And they were striving to get across the sea and they, they went into this boat and it failed and crashed upon the seashore. And the Pope said, you know, in my heart there was a thorn there for the whole of the next week and I thought, I have to go to Lampedusa and point the conscience of the world to this place and this event and these people who are forgotten. And so he went to the Secretary of State who organizes all the things in the Vatican and said, I want to go to fly to Lampedusa and have a mass there and speak to the world about this. And the Secretary says, Oh, Holy Father, you'll learn But we can't do that. It takes months to put together such an event. So the Pope went off. And two days later, the Secretary of State, this is a true story, got a call from the head of president of Alitalia Airlines saying, I just want to let you know that the Pope made a reservation for himself (laughs) and two others to fly down there. So the trip occurred. And when the Pope got there, here is part of what he said. This morning, in the light of God's word, which has just been proclaimed, I wish to offer some thoughts meant to challenge people's consciences and lead them to reflection and a concrete change of heart. Adam, where are you? This is the first question God asks man after his sin. Adam, where are you? Adam had lost his bearings, his place in creation, because he thought he could be powerful, able to control everything to be God. Harmony was lost, man erred, and this error occurs over and over again also in relationships with men and women. The other is no longer a brother or a sister to be loved, but simply someone who disturbs my life, and my comfort. God asks a second question. Cain, where is your brother? The illusion of being powerful, of being as great as God, even as being God himself, leads to a whole series of errors, a chain of death, even spilling of a brother's blood, and refusal to acknowledge the other as brother. In Catholic theology, it is the conversion of heart which is at the center of our approach to the question of immigration, which is so crucial in our society and our world today. It is not a question of logic or of convincing. It is a question of conversion, of understanding the depths of our heart and soul who immigrants are, who refugees are. For those of us who are Christian, and too, as you honor Jesus in the Muslim tradition, 
Our scriptures tell us that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph had to flee out of Israel into Egypt because of oppression. They were refugees. Thus God himself, taken on human form, came among us as a refugee. The Holy Family were refugees. I said this once in a, in, in a statement after something had been done on immigration policy here, and it got on Fox News that I'd called them refugees. And they said, the commentator said it was Fox and Friends, and they said, oh no, that's the wrong story. They didn't go, they were just going to Bethlehem for the census. Bishop McElroy got it wrong. And then they had to rush in somebody to tell them, no, it's not a reference to the census, it's a reference to the flight into Egypt. But God became a refugee. And that's foundational for us. At this moment, all of us in our nation particularly are called to a profound conversion of understanding what does it mean to understand the depths of our hearts and souls that we are all brothers and sisters to every immigrant and to every refugee. This is a conversion that calls us to see what that passage from the Pope is saying. We cannot look on this as the other, as someone distant, as somebody who disturbs my comfort, as someone outside my scope of care and compassion and concern. The immigrants and the refugees in this world, particularly the refugees, those on the move, those who are forced from their homelands. We are called to see this as a call to action on our part, to solidarity, not to borders, not to walls, but to solidarity first. And it is a conversion not only to a stance of faith in which we see Jesus Christ himself as our brother, as a refugee, but also to our national heritage. We are a nation of immigrants, almost without exception. You know, the Native American population is accepting that, and in many ways, you know, the African American population is because they didn't come here their own free will, certainly. But we are a nation of immigrants. And we are setting that aside in our consciousness as a people. We are denying who we are, the most fundamental identity we have as Americans. We are setting aside now. So the conversion that the church calls us to is not just a conversion of faith. It is that. It is first that. But it is also a conversion to our national identity and heritage as Americans. We must understand the presence of people from different cultures is a gift to our nation, not a burden. Every study shows that those who leave a place and go as immigrants tend to have more of energy and creativity and new thought patterns that they bring to the new land. And that's what's made our country great over the years the constant injection of new peoples, diverse cultures, making our nation richer, we have to recover that. It's a source of renewed vitality to us. You know, many, many nations are languishing now. Many of the European nations are languishing now 
because they have not been revitalized. We need to savor the fact and take up the fact that we are. We also have to acknowledge the presence of racial, religious, and cultural bigotry in our nation's welcomes to Im- welcomed immigrants. That's also part of our national heritage. We can't, we can't deny it. it's always been there. But it has a particularly invidious element in this moment in our history. Michael Kazin, who's a, a historian of American populism at, in Washington, Georgetown, <clears throat> says there are two kinds of populism in the history of the United States. The first is a po- all populism is anti-elite. Okay, that's what populism is. So all populism is anti-elite, but there are two forms. One is simply anti-elite. The other form, Kazin says, is it's anti-elite, but it also picks certain segments of society who are marginalized and makes them targets too. And some populism has been both, and some has been one. What we're in the middle of is both. It targets elites, ostensibly, but it also targets certain groups in our society. And we've seen it. The Muslim ban, which is, it, it was a centerpiece of national policy. I never thought I would witness a moment in this era in which we saw a deliberate anti-religious bias built into the law purposely to exclude and to place people in a second-class status. And all the obfuscation of that doesn't make any difference. We all know what it was, and we all know what lies at the heart of that. And we cannot let that triumph. Last year, when the separation of children was going on of families, we got a call from uh, people in the, who work in the government. They were just dropping off these families, mothers and fathers and children. These were intact families. It was, I was surprised. It was not mostly single mother families. It was, it was intact families. They were dropping them off at midnight at the Greyhound bus depot downtown. Some people in the port of entry would not stand for this. And so they called us and they said, if we can bring them by the day before they have to be separated and come to you in the middle of the night, can you take them and process them and keep them safe? See, they go out to their families for a period of time until they're hearing. This is the refugees, those seeking asylums. So we started that for a while, and then it was discovered and shut down. But that they were willing to risk their jobs for that. That's a marvelous thing. And uh, we opened up a center, you know, first it was the Salvation Army opened it up, and then uh, a number of interfaith groups were involved with it, and you were involved with it, and uh, the Jewish uh, services were involved. It was pretty much across the board, and finally it ended up at the, we have a retreat center down near the border, so we cleared that out. But when you go and see these families, they were dazed. As I said, they were mothers and fathers and children. And when you talk with them, they had come here and they'd gone through these terrible things to get here, and they kind of thought everything would be at least better once they got over the border. 
And they do have family here. They go. But then they were just left in this limbo, not knowing how, how to get there, how to have their court dates made properly, so they still would have the asylum request. And this is what our policy is. This is what we say to our immigrants, to our brothers and sisters. Cain, where is your brother? Catholic teaching says that a nation has a right to control its borders. We do. We have an absolute right to control our borders and to admit whom we wish. But we also have a moral obligation to take in immigrants and particularly refugees who are desperate in the world. And insofar as we can do so, and the United States has had such a tremendous role in this, our teaching is we have an obligation as a nation to do that. We're facing a series of questions. The question of the undocumented, that the mothers and fathers and children and young adults among us who live not knowing whether they will be allowed to continue. I'm meeting tomorrow with the Mexican consul. And a couple of years ago, the Mexican consul came to me and said, um, we've got to have the, the families sign guardianship papers for their kids. Because if they don't, they get, especially with a single family, if they get deported, the children are taken to social services. They're not, even if they're relatives there, they're taken to social services. So we had to have in our parishes different uh, meetings and get the parents. But the hard part of the parent isn't signing the thing. It's having to sit down with their child and say, if you come home from school one day and I'm not here, you must go see Aunt Susie or Cousin Tom because they'll be taking care of you. Can you imagine saying that? And that's what we have to ask our people to do. As we begin to solve all of these problems and move forward, uh, our teaching says, and your teaching says the same thing, that we must look to our brothers and sisters and see them in that light and see them, immigrants and refugees who came here, as our forebearers who came here and understand God is saying to us, where is your brother? Here he is. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. By, by way of um, building up a dialogue between our speakers, uh, I thought perhaps I could propose... Perhaps a, a question as a way for a conversation to happen. And the question is, is very much based on the personal experience I had when I moved to the U.S. in 1980s. I am of Iranian birth. I, basically, my family, we are refugees. And to a certain extent, we had to escape the country in order to come to the U.S. because of a revolution, a war that was happening in Iran. Um, the story is long. But what I could tell you is that the first two or three years I was in the U.S., it was devastating for me as a young boy growing up in Iran, and now I'm in the U.S. not knowing the culture. Um, I remember a number of very negative encounters from a number of people who simply thought, I'm a terrorist. Um, 
given the fact that this was the height of the anti-Iranian sentiment in the U.S. after the U.S. hostage crisis. I remember for a while I pretended to be Italian, uh, hoping that would save me. But I also remember a number of occasions where I was met with kindness. And more importantly, this is the key question I want to ask, hospitality. Hospitality from Americans of Christian background who welcomed me, who gave me love and care in many different ways. And that hospitality very much reminded me of a tradition in which in Iran I encountered as a child, a tradition of hospitality, a tradition in which I could, with my family, we could go to a city beyond Tehran where we were at, and there we would be cared, and we would be treated as guests. As guests. I wonder if there is a connection here between Christianity and Islam specifically, on this tradition of hospitality, which we know that the religions have and had that for many centuries, in which we could build on a way in which of, of, of trying to promote a more hospitable environment and, and, and I guess even you could say a new kind of politics in the U.S. Mm. in the age of Trump. Mm-hmm. And um, this, is a, this is a basic question I have. It's really a question of hospitality. How much of that we could build on, or if there's anything else that we could discuss mm. in a way of uh, building bridges here. Mm. Before uh, answering this question, let me just briefly remind myself and everyone that Muslims didn't start migrating to North America a few decades ago or right after 9-11 or something. No, no, no. Actually, this nation before it was named the United States of America, Islam and Muslims existed right here. Since the very beginning, if you go and see some of the statements of the uh, founding fathers of, of the United States, you will see the term Mohammedans, which means followers of Prophet Muhammad, especially in the writings and the statements of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, whenever he talked about the, uh, the, the commonwealth and the well-being of all the uh, 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 portions of the American nation, he mentioned Jewish, he mentioned Christians, he mentioned, he mentioned uh, atheists, and he mentioned Mohammedans. All of them have the equal right to the commonwealth of our nation. Thomas Jefferson himself had his own book copy of the Quran that is still preserved at the Library of the Congress. Muslims have been here. Uh, the ve- one of the very first Muslim congregation was established in the year 1900 in the small town of Ross in North Dakota. Later on, they built their own uh, mosque over there in 1929. Without forgetting that about 40% of the enslaved people who were kidnapped from their homes in West Africa, and they ended up slaves here, more than 40% of them were Muslims. And many of them were not allowed to practice their faith by their own masters, and they were forced to attend the Sunday Mass just for their masters to use, again, the Bible and the cross and the name of Jesus, peace be upon him, to convince them that they were created to be slaves and we were created to be masters. And go to the stories of some of them. My hero is by the name of Abdurrahman Ibrahim Asori, a very well-educated intellectual speaking several languages, enslaved person. 
Actually, the uh, PBS published a film documentary about his life a few years ago titled Prince Among Slaves. I highly recommend you to go back. Prince Among Slaves. He became, long story short, he became the very first Muslim enslaved person freed by the U.S. government. He was freed by the U.S. government after the U.S. government bought him from his master in the Mississippi. And then he hand, the, the U.S. government allowed him to go back to Africa with his wife, but he was not allowed to take his kids with him, by the way. So when we talk about the separation of the families now, it's not something that just happened. It is something, unfortunately, very well-rooted in the history of this nation. Coming back to your uh, question, most of the people who showed up at different major airports right after the declaration of the Muslim ban and travel ban were Christian people. Most of them were non-Muslims, just showing solidarity and sympathy and support to their Muslim neighbors, to their Muslim brothers and sisters. Most of the people with whom we work in our alliances and as partners on social justice and immigration justice issues are Christians. So the concept of hospitality is always a very profound and strong concept within the American society. Yes, we are facing a lot of challenges, systematic challenges. But when it comes to the grassroots grass root level and the organizations that are active every single day, these are mixed organizations and mixed group of people, mixed activists, who are proud of whoever they are, Muslims, Christians, Jewish, atheists, whoever. But when it comes to the issue of showing solidarity to the refugees and the immigrants, we have seen that on the ground. We have seen people putting their bodies to save their refugee neighbor, their uh, immigrant uh, co-worker who uh, you know, is about to, de to be deported or something like this. So we have seen this in the ground, and this is why we are extremely grateful for all the people coming from all walks of life who are showing this solidarity and working together with us in order to face these challenges. I would, I would just address this question on three levels. <clears throat> on the question of hospitality one-on-one. -on -one. Um, in the Christian tradition, I would say there is no corresponding uh, prioritization of hospitality as it is in Islam. Islam and Islamic cultures tend to have a great sense of hospitality per se. That's a virtue. It's not a big virtue in Christianity. Compassion would be probably close to that, but it's not exactly, hospitality and compassion are not exactly the same thing. So I do think you have a head start uh, on that, which is great. Um, and hopefully compassion can help. But the, so the first level is, is that uh, you know, question of hospitality. The second is that there are times, and I see it frequently, when people understand each other as human beings, when they stop relating to each other as 
Cain and Abel, well, where is my brother? And see my sister, my brother before me. That, that in that moment, real compassion or real hospitality comes forth. But the third level is very difficult. How do people translate that notion of whether we call it compassion or hospitality to the structural level, where it tends to be abstract, particularly in a, in a no, nation where tribalism is so rampant and operates against the jump to, to, that, uh, to that level. So, mm-hmm. right, Thank you. Um, we have an option of opening up uh, the, the, the floor to Q&A. I think that would give us more time to have a good, robust discussion. Uh, in the spirit of civility, which our country very much is in need of, uh, I ask everyone to, of course, be respectful, you know, uh, ask thoughtful and relevant questions. And uh, now the floor is open for questions. Is there a way of taking the good effort that you have started and doing something with it? This is, this is our... Okay, let me talk about myself. This is my full-time uh, job basically, is to reach out to different communities, not only to have this interfaith dialogue that will help us to understand one another, but to work together, try to understand one another, try to establish that brotherhood and sisterhood and friendship in the community. And this can be done through so many means and ways, uh, inviting one another, hosting uh, at the Islamic Center of San Diego, for example, hosting uh, events and inviting, uh, you know, the, the churches in the area uh, of the Claremont area, for example, uh, during the uh, winter rotational uh, interface shelter network, uh, the Islamic Center of San Diego teams up with several now three churches in the area where they host the guests, we call the homeless the guests, and the members of my community provide dinner, provide overnight volunteers. This is what we have been doing for several years. And we believe that this is what all the houses of worship, regardless of their faith or denomination, should do in order to bring their people together and establish this relationship. And because we have worked hard to establish this relationship, when things happened uh, within my community like the, 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 the Muslim ban or something like this. Those same people with whom we have been working for so long, without asking them, they just immediately came to us, telling us, we are here, what do you want me to do? What kind of job you have for me? I'm, I'm ready to spend some time, I'm ready to do this or that. What do you have for me to do to show solidarity and to show sympathy with your community? So. The, this, this brotherhood and sisterhood is not something that we should just expect to come, you know, down from above. It is the result of the hard work, the daily work of people from different houses of worship and faith communities coming together to establish and to uh, achieve this noble cause, which is establishing the friendship between the members of our communities. I, I would say... Two things, two ways. It's what you do too. It's a narrative. Narrative is a way into people's hearts. When people come and tell their stories to other people, immigrants, uh, often immigrants who are here who are undocumented, 
or people who have suffered terrible hardships of discrimination on, based on religion or race. That communicates to the hearts of people who might not be open to understanding, but narrative opens people up because it's, the human, it's another human being standing in front of you and saying, this is my experience. And that lots of people can be transformed by understanding and reaching into the suffering of others. Now, I think on the national level, we're going to come to such a moment in, in about eight months in this sense. Uh, the Supreme Court heard the DACA case recently. It appears from all the observers I've seen that they think DACA will, will be struck down by the court. Then we as a nation are going to have to confront this key question which will be very wrenching. Are we really going to let young men and young women who came here, were brought here as children, and who have not known any other country than this, are we really going to deport them? And I think, even though I would wish the court would uphold DACA, on certain ways I do, I'm not so hot on the constitutional structure of DACA, frankly, Uh, because it gives way for all sorts of executive actions that I think are problematic. But uh, I think that conversation could be a way for our country to confront this issue in a new way and make some real progress on it. Because I have to think in the end, we will not seek to deport a million DACA young people. How do we prepare rather than going on crisis mode. Oh, they voted no. What do we do now? How do we start a movement to, or a structure, to get us all together so that we momentarily can get up without emotion, without anger, with a pure strategy of where do we go now? And can we also legislate instead of voting from the pulpit, instruct from the pulpit. Sadly, we've come to a time in our politics, nothing is done until crunch time. It's a disaster. It's a disaster for us as a country. Nothing gets done. Shutdowns occur. All of the momentous decisions wait till a moment when catastrophe is around the corner. And I sadly think it'll be that way. Now, I do think when that moment comes, then the response from the religious communities has to be enormously strong. That is, moving in a variety of ways simply to ensure that this does not happen. Uh, you know, uh, with, with, with action and witness and sacrifice to prevent this from happening. I, and I think that can be blocked if, if we move effectively at that time. Sadly, ginning up uh, support ahead. Congress will not move, won't even come to the floor. Do you know, I remember going one time, I can't remember, it was at a time when the, the immigration reform, good immigration reform, had passed the Senate. It was, it had already passed the Senate. There was a good bill sitting in the House. And Boehner was still, um, what do you call it, uh, Speaker of the House. And, and he was a good man. 
we went to see Boehner. And part of the problem is everybody uses this issue politically. You know, it's not exactly white hats and black hats as it plays out, you know. But Boehner was at a point, he was at the end of his career, and we were pressing him. There was someone who was very close to him, a bishop was pressing him to bring it to the floor, because that's all that was needed. If it had come to the floor, there were plenty of Republicans who would vote for it on the floor. But it couldn't come to the floor because of the so-called Hastrich rule, which you had to have a majority of the majority. So it wouldn't get brought to the floor. And we were saying to him, you know, you're not going to be around here a lot longer, because he was tired of the job anyway, and things had gotten tough for him. What a great thing to go out with having been the architect of 11 million people receiving at least legalization of their status. And I almost thought it was going to happen, that didn't happen. It's just everything gets stymied. So our, our, our structures are set up, and that's part, part of the things I want to say, I'm so proud of what the founders did on many levels, but they really put a lot of structures in there to prevent action. And so we, a lot of times when we need action, we don't get it. But I do think that will be a moment that could be a wonderful moment of breakthrough on this question of, of immigration because it's the most sympathetic and strongest case, you know, uh, and, and we just can't stand by. You talked about in Germany, you know. That would be not the same, but that would be like standing by at that moment and letting this happen. It's, it's not the same as well, but to, deport, to let deportations begin with those young people would be just unforgivable, I think, for us. I, I would say that um, in addition to what Bishop mentioned, we shouldn't wait for that moment and then we start, act, we start acting at uh, emergency mode. Uh, we don't know what to do and we get overwhelmed with, with a lot of stuff happening. I believe the most important thing is to build the power within our communities. And I understand that not every uh, Catholic parish is active in this field. There are those who are, there are those who don't. The same thing with any Christian denomination. Sometimes you cannot even understand how come, you know, these two churches who belong to the same denomination, one of them is firing up and the other one is sleeping all the way the same thing with our community. There are some mosques that are very active, and there are some mosques and Islamic centers who don't know what's going on whatsoever. You know, they are just inside their bubble, comfort zone, enjoying their spirituality within the institution. And, you know, when you talk to them about, hey, there is a crisis on our border right here. We need to do something about it. Good luck. So I believe that the most important thing is to build the power and to have the people ready to raise the awareness about what's going on, what we are expecting. So when things happen, people will be ready. And we have seen this. We have seen this by working with uh, several organizations within our community. Uh, a few years ago when we did the Faith uh, Not Fear action at Our Lady of Guadalupe, a huge crowd showed up over there. Even we brought our elected officials. We brought 
the, uh, the DA, we brought the sheriff, we brought, you know, the chief of SDPD, we brought, you know, almost every single elected official was there. And it was a huge event where we spoke directly to our elected officials, telling them that we need San Diego to be safe. We don't want people to get harmed. So we don't want you to take any action that might cause any harm to anyone and any family here in San Diego. This is what we need. This is the power building that we need. And there is no one who can lead that like faith leaders, religious leaders. Because no matter what we say about the religiosity shrinking or something like this, still in our nation, especially comparing to Europe, in our nation, the faith leaders still have a big influence on the society. Do you agree with me? I do. I was just... I just want to recall a moment that was, and you were there too, when we had the march on the, on the detention center. Yes. Remember that? From San Ysidro too. And so we met and there were about 60 people who were going to, uh, it, it was a federal detention center for immigrants. It was during the time of the separations. So there were 60 people that were going to be arrested. And what they were going to do, there was a fence on the property, a wire fence, they were going to tie baby shoes on there. And then because they're stepping on the property, they'd get arrested by the sheriff's department. So anyway, we marched down the street, all that. A beautiful moment was when we came, remember when we came to the detention center and we were singing something outside and the people from inside sung back. And we just stopped. Remember, we went back and forth. So it was, they, they heard us. And they knew we were there. But anyway, so we go on. And then, the, you know, we had our uh, talks and so forth. And then the people with the baby shoes went out. But there's 60 of you. They go out. And so I was standing next to a, a uh, public official who will remain nameless, uh, but who had a, a jurisdiction over this. And so they were waiting to be arrested. And nobody's getting arrested. And I said something to him, and he said, Bishop, if you think we're going to arrest people for putting baby shoes on a fence, <laughs> you've got to think we're pretty stupid. <laughs> so, but the, but the, the action does make, make a difference. And I, I just think there come certain moments when the country has to decide. I really think the DACA will be a very serious moment. And it's unfortunately going to come in the middle of this campaign, which, me, which means all the divisions will be amplified too, but... So the year 2020 is going to be very interesting. Very interesting year. Um, The bishop spoke about crunch time. We now have reached the end of tonight's program. I want to thank the speaker for their thoughtful commentary, for sharing their wisdom. I also want to thank the audience for joining us. Uh, We had a very interesting session tonight. And uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.